Glad. Glad a break didn't change that. Um, we doing okay? Pants, what do we think? Yeah? It's just fulfilling a dream of mine. I took humanities here when I was a student. It's just really beautiful. What a moment. I'll try not to get all professorial on you. Um, I don't think I can really pull that off. But I did think about wearing like a, a jacket with elbow patches just on the table. Anyway, if you don't know me and you're more skeptical than ever, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the campus minister for RUF, Reformed University Fellowship. We are a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve the campus and to serve you all. Uh, so we hope that you do feel served wherever you are and whoever you are. Uh, and really, that all is to say that we don't exist for one kind of person. We want to be a ministry, a place for every kind of person where anyone from any social scene on campus or any personal background can come and feel welcomed. Um, and also that includes wherever you are with Jesus or Christianity, we're really glad you're here. Um, whether you call yourself convinced or unconvinced, whether you call yourself a believer um, or a spiritual skeptic, or maybe you'd feel uncomfortable with um, those terms, you'd say I'm none of the above or I'm somewhere in between. We're real thankful you're here and we hope you feel welcomed. Um, and if you're new to RUF, especially welcome to you. Um, you could define that loosely. This could be your third time, fourth time, whatever. We're glad you're here. Thanks for taking the time uh, in the semester. I know that gets harder as the semester keeps going. So thanks for that. All right, so this semester in large group, we're actually looking at the books of Psalms and the book of, well, let me try that again. The book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs. Um, these two books, uh, we're studying these two books together because we think that the book of Psalms, the book of Proverbs, teach us how to process our lives. So we're looking together this semester at how to process our lives. Uh, we think the Psalms and Proverbs show us how to handle emotions, how to make decisions, how to treat relationships, and then how to live more fully, more open-hearted and wide-eyed with the world. And that's the goal, that's what we're looking at, that's our topic. Um, and along these lines, here's my title, which again is classic, uh, has a very short title and a very long subtitle. So however you want to address it, this is the semester large group series title. Hopefully it captures uh, everything at a glance and then a very long paragraph. Okay, sorting life, sorting life, praying our emotions to God and applying God's wisdom to our decisions, our relationships, and ourselves. So we're looking at sorting life. And so, um, the first few weeks, we'll do part one of our mini-series. Our first mini-series is on emotion and prayer. And so it'll be called Praying Our Emotions. Um, and so we'll be, well, last week we did Sorting Happiness. This week we're doing Sorting Our Fears. And then Proverbs is going to be the second part of the semester. There'll be a rough break around spring break. And we'll jump into Proverbs, uh, applying God's wisdom when you're emotionally taxed, of course. So that'll be perfect. Um, Tonight we're looking at the Psalms and the topic of prayer and emotion. As I said, we looked last week at happiness, and this week we're looking at anxiety and fear. Um, but before we get into Psalm 27 and those emotions, uh, anxiety and fear, let me take a brief step back and talk about how our emotional lives relate to our prayer lives, the idea of prayer. Okay? So writer and pastor Tim Keller rightly identifies that our cultural moment is not just polarized politically, it's also polarized in the way that we handle emotions. You get two conflicting sets of advice, okay? 
one side, let's call them the traditional or conservative approach, is under-aware of emotions. It's under-aware of emotions. So they tell us to stuff our emotions, to deny our emotions, to act as if they're not there. On the other side, let's call it the more secular or liberal approach, there's an overawe with emotion. It's an overawe with emotion. They tell us to bow down to and vent our feelings as if every emotional expression is good, even when it's at someone. So the Psalms, though, what Keller calls deeply emotional prayers, the Psalms offer this beautiful third way, a way between these two kind of polarized extremes. We get to pray our emotions. Not vent, not stuff, but pray our emotions. To pour them out into the presence of God and not at somebody else necessarily. But the Psalms also, not, they don't just help us to honestly express our feelings. We get to honestly express our feelings where we are with God and to God, but also the, the Psalms actually help to form our emotions. And then I think this is the most interesting part of the Psalms. The Psalms not only address every circumstance we could have as a human being, they also address a way in which we can pray, pray all of those life circumstances back to God. And so when we pray the Psalms with our emotions, our hearts and our relationships change for the better. Over time, we no longer consider prayer some sort of vague wish upwards. Hope that goes well. Okay. <laughs> it's no longer some sort of like practice in good manners, right? where we just string a bunch of titles together for God, and then we sort of end it with a certain steeple-shaped prayer motion, and we're done. Instead, we begin to connect, we begin to commune with the living God of the universe through connecting our emotional life to our prayer life. And that's the goal of what we're up to these next couple of weeks. Okay, so, but before we look at connecting those fearful part of ourselves to the God in Psalm 27, let's pray again together, that's all right. Father, uh, I thank you for this group of students who's here um, to talk about fear and to hear about fear. Maybe they didn't know that and they want to leave right now, and that's okay. Uh, I pray that you would be with us, even in our fear of fear. I pray that you would comfort us, that you would teach us about what it means in our hearts when we feel the murmur of anxiety. I pray, Jesus, that you would be in the midst of it, that you'd show us the ways in which you still and silence our fears the ways in which you meet us in the places where we feel the most weak and the most vulnerable. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be high and lifted up and that you'd be more believable and more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts. Lord, we would see your beauty. We would look at your goodness. And I pray that that would begin even in the next few minutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it was, a, it was the September of 2012. <coughs> And I was living in Las Cruces, New Mexico. I was there previous to here. I was a campus minister for our UF at New Mexico State University. Go Aggies. Um, I know you guys all knew that, except maybe, maybe Kat, that's about it. Um, about four years before um, I had started that job and the ministry was growing. Um, it was really cool to watch. Like we start out in this really small first floor room for a large group in the Corbett Student Union. And then we kind of expanded to the second floor room that was slightly larger. And then um, about a week or two before my story begins, we expanded to the largest room in the union, the student auditorium. And at first I was really thrilled about this move, of course, 
There are a lot of people coming to large group. There was a great student energy uh, around REF at NMSU. But then I preached my first sermon in the student auditorium. I can't exactly remember how many people were there. I tried to count that kind of thing. And we probably didn't really fill up even half the auditorium. It was pretty big. But I do remember that I had to use a lapel microphone. And I do remember that there were these red, plush, fold out like theater chairs. And I remember there was an elevated stage. And there were these harsh, blinding stage lights. And let's be honest, I felt kind of like a big deal. Okay, for that one moment in my campus ministry career, <laughs> this guy. And part of me loved it, part of the other part of me absolutely hated it. I felt like this low level celebrity, right? A success. But on the other hand, I felt distant and removed and anxious. The feelings and anxiety actually flared up the following week after that first sermon in the auditorium. Uh, a day or so before the next large group, I began to feel the mounting pressure paired with this growing sense of inadequacy. I falsely credited my preaching, of course, to this new, bigger room change, and I felt the pressure to produce a killer sermon. I was going toe-to-toe with the podcast specials, and I was just, or maybe even I was just trying to better my last week's sermon every week, and I started to feel the burn. The night before the large group, became that semester a poor, worried night's sleep. The morning of large group, I felt this like growing pit in my stomach, and I could barely eat breakfast. The anxious pattern of fear continued for the rest of the fall semester. In fact, it continued until I announced that I was leaving New Mexico State to come here to Davidson. Only then did I actually begin to feel a little bit more free a little bit more able to fail, a little bit more able to be just average or mediocre. You think, you see, I think actually most of us, when we think about the topic of fear and anxiety, think about living in a dangerous world, okay? Most of us see it in statistics like 71% of Americans think that a terrorist act on US soil is likely and coming soon, 71%, okay? Whatever your opinion about how to handle it politically, okay, we're not going to that today. But while fear has to do with big external threats, it also has to do with these personal phobias, right? I mean, some people have these very personal phobias, like they're freaked out by spiders or heights or tight spaces or open places. Fear also has to do with, above all the things, our demand for success. I felt like, and to be honest, I still feel like I can't preach a bad sermon. Because most of the time in the past, I've actually had success. I've actually had some good feedback, or whatever you call success in this line of work. Likewise, Davidson College actually works very similarly. This place runs on the demand for success. The quest for the best. You all are here because people all along the course of your life told you that you are getting it done. You're a good student. You're a superior athlete, you're a talented musician, you're a likable and respected person, and you killed it editing the yearbook, didn't you? (laughs) Never been better. But for many of us, these praises have been twisted into fear and anxiety. What if I'm not that smart? What if I'm not that talented? What if I'm just not that likable? Or what if Quips and Cranks doesn't need my Adobe skills? I mean, honestly, these are the pressing questions. Uh, 
So suddenly there can be this, this pressure to perform, all kidding aside, the sense of mounting inadequacy, even and perhaps especially if you're continuing to get praise, if you're making it at Davidson, if you feel like you're doing well, but also if you feel like you're not doing so well, the pressure mounts. Why? Why is this? Because what matters most to us in this life, what matters most to us in this life is least in our control. I say that again. What matters most to us in this life is actually least in our control. That is, my performance, what people think of me, is not really actually up to me. Psalm 27 steps into this very real and very raw place. The psalmist David exposes his fears and prays his panic out loud for us to hear and for us to say along. In verse 1 alone, he mentions fear two separate times. But notice how David, still feeling very anxious, directs us all toward a very different, and I would say jarring, sense of purpose. So he goes from fear to a very different sense of purpose. The beauty and the goodness of the Lord God. That's not where we necessarily expected him to go. In a sentence, Psalm 27 says this, the antidote to our anxiety is Jesus' beauty. The antidote to our anxiety is Jesus' beauty. Adoring God's goodness answers fear's fundamental question. The adoration of God's goodness answers fear's fundamental question, which is, will God protect me? Does God have my back? That's what fear is all about. Psalm 27 doesn't answer this by giving us like a singular mystical moment, but instead it carefully lays out a level path towards less fear and more adoration. First, verses 1 through 3, they tell us how to listen to our inner fears. So we're going to look first at how to listen to our inner fears. Then verses 4 through 12 tell us how to engage God in our fears. And then third and finally, verses 13 through 14 tell us how to open ourselves up again to an unsafe world. Okay, this is all, by the way, on your outline, on your handout. I'll let you look there. So let's begin with Psalm 27's beginning, verses 1 through 3, and how to listen to our inner fears. Like, I want you to notice how the psalmist opens... Um, that the psalmist David opens by discussing his fears in verses 1 through 3. Look how open he is about it. It's amazing. In verse 1, he asks, whom shall I fear? Twice. And in verses 2 through 3, he rattles off a list, all of his fear factors, what forces in his life might cause him fear at that moment. Evildoers, adversaries, foes, even an army. And later, we know in verse 12 that these fear factors, these fearful forces, are still at work in his heart. He's not quite as over as he sounds in verses 1 through 3. We'll see that when we get later in the passage. But I want to point out that a lot of us, I would say many of us, are not actually as willing to go there. We're not as willing to be honest and open about our negative emotions. We don't want to talk about, we don't want to pray through, we don't even want to think more about the darker, more negative emotions that go on in our lives. We have sort of an avoidance strategy, a duck and cover methodology. But Psalm 27 is showing us an incredible biblical wisdom. We need to acknowledge and allow for negative emotions like fear 
and anxiety. If you don't believe me, just look at Disney. The movie Inside Out, right? The character Joy has to realize that maturity looks like, requires feeling things that are uncomfortable in the short term, right? She has to let sadness handle memories in order for those memories to be more full and more permanent. But look, even fear has its purpose, which I think is amazing. We think that fear is the worst thing ever. Why does it even exist? But it certainly has its, its, its purpose. According to the counselor David Pallison, anxiety is a God-given capacity for knowing something bad is going on in your world. Okay, So anxiety is a God-given capacity for knowing something bad is going on in your world. Does that make sense? That's how you know that something's fear tells us that something's not the way it should be. That someone or something is moving against us. And that thing, that person, might very well intend to harm us. Okay, so we can step out of the way so that we can fight or we can flight. And then anger, what we'll talk about later, is about fighting, and fear is about flying or fleeing. Okay, so Basically, fear looks at the, the opposition and goes, I can't hack it, and takes off. So look, let me say it this way. I'm going to put this biochemical genetic caveat on the table and say that this isn't universal across the board, that people are different, that biological playing fields are not even or fair even. Many people are predisposed to emotions at different levels okay, based on family background and genetic makeup. But let me say this. Typically, emotions like anxiety function like the check engine light of your car. Some of you heard me talk about this, okay? So the, the emotion of anxiety functions like the check engine light of your car on your dashboard, right? Your living life, class, commons, library, commons, IMAX, union, repeat, okay? <laughs> over and over and over again. Maybe you go to your room to sleep. And all of a sudden, this angry red light appears, fear out of the corner of your eye, right? And you have this choice in this moment. When you feel fear, do I just keep on driving? Or do I pull off to the side of the road, lift up the hood of my heart, and try to see what's the matter? Oftentimes, many of us actually ignore the check engine light. In real life, but also emotionally, especially. Okay? <laughs> it's true. Okay? That's why, like, none of our cars start over brake, whatever. Okay? So, look. Many of us ignore that, okay? Many of us um, don't, don't want to deal with the check engine light, the fear. We hope that the fear is going to go away. And look, some check engine lights actually blink because there's like some sort of malfunction, okay? That happens. That happens at an emotional level, too. Like you feel an irrational fear. It has nothing to do with anything. It just slides away. But I think that's actually the rare thing. Just like it's rare that your check engine light goes on and there's not something that matters with your car, okay? It's actually more likely that our feelings like fear are signaling something serious. It could be as serious as needing an oil change, but it could also be a crack in the engine block. Okay? And we don't know that until we lift up the hood and we take a look at ourselves. Or maybe, if that feels confusing and smoky, to actually go and invite a friend or an expert like a pastor or counselor to come take a look too. So this is this is what the this is what the past. I know it's such an extended metaphor, everyone. I mean, are we still there? Are we? You knew had no idea I was a car mechanic as well as a pastor. I appreciate that. So how do we lift the hood of our hearts? 
you, you guys have no idea. I had to like really think about cracking the engine block. That was all I had. <laughs> there were like three things wrong with the car. Okay. So how do we lift the hood of our hearts and look at what fear tells us about what's going on inside there? How do we do that? What's beautiful is this psalm tells us. Okay. We see this in verses two and three. It shows us how helpful it is to list out our fears. This is like simple, but like when you're spinning, it actually helps to write out or pray out or do both with your fears, to catalog your fears, what's going on, what's driving you crazy, what you're stressing out about. The first help here is that this list is actually finite. It doesn't feel finite, it feels infinite. But when you list it out, it actually helps you to realize that it's not everything that ever was. Okay, there's only so many things. The second help is that this process actually slows us down and makes us be still. It counteracts like this denial, this busy avoidance that leads us to keep on driving on the check engine line and possibly actually doing more damage to ourselves and to other people. But these opening verses, especially verse one, also show us there's not just a value to listing out our fears, there's actually a value to questioning our fears, okay? David repeatedly asks his heart, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Verse one encourages us to ask ourselves, Sid, why are you so afraid? What are your fears saying? What's at stake? What's being threatened? And that last question is especially important to ask. What is it that you're afraid of losing? What is it that you're afraid you'll never get? Again, to quote David Pallison, worry is actually about trying to hold on to what you might lose or grabbing for what you don't have. So worry is about trying to hold on to what you might lose or grabbing for what you don't have. So questioning this true source of fear actually leads us to verses 4 through 12. And point two, engaging our hearts in fear. Okay? Even though verse 4 initially seems like a big jump in logic, when we first read Psalm 27, there's actually this continuity that's built in, okay? You see, the psalmist is actually shifting his prayed out loud thoughts from listening to his inner fears in verses one through three to the one thing he asks of the Lord in verses four and following, okay? Because David realizes that what his fears are about, his fears are about what he's asking for. Okay. What he wants more than anything else, but fears he's going to lose. What does he want above anything else, but he fears he'll never get? That's what his fear is about. That's what our fear is about. You see, David knows that our fears show us where our treasure is. Our fears unearth our treasure. They show us where our treasure is. And here's the deal. Often, the things we love more than God cause the most anxiety. Oftentimes, the things we love more then God caused the most anxiety in our lives. So what are you most stressed out about right now? Dangerous question, week three, okay? Is it a friendship? Is it a boyfriend or girlfriend? Is it a parent's expectations that just sort of riding you like a donkey? Or maybe it's a job or an internship in May that you must have, or that you will you're never gonna get. These are all good things really good things, but at a heart level, we all know these good things are things we can't control. We can lose them, or we might never actually get them. 
And that's where fear comes in. But the psalmist David wants to us to tre- wants himself and wants us to treasure something that's absolutely free. Someone that can never be lost. David desires to desire the beauty of the Lord. The beauty of the Lord Jesus. One thing I've asked of the Lord, one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire or meditate in his temple. Verse 4. Look, it sounds like King David is asking to give up his kingship and go bunk at God's uh, God's temple, right, in Jerusalem, to become a full-blown, full-ordered priest. But what he's actually asking for is a sustained, profound, and constant contact with the presence of God. To gaze at, that is to stare at and to bask in God's glorious person. To gaze at and to bask in God's personal characteristics. God's characteristics, his characteristic deeds of love and of mercy and of justice. The Bible and Christianity are, after all, after this. They are after a personal relationship with an absolute person. That's what it's all about at the end of the day. In the words of Tim Keller, who I quoted earlier, the psalmist is yearning for the same kind of unbroken contact with the presence of God that is typified by a literal living in the temple courts. He's saying, I've had intermittent times of fellowship with God, but now I want to constantly enjoy his presence. And here's the beautiful thing. The contemplation of God itself dissolves his fears. His mind, in a sense, is taken off of himself. It's transported to the beauty of the Lord. You see, David realizes that his heart will only let go of something less than secure. His heart will only let go of something less than free, something, someone less than God, by adoring God in himself and for himself. To explain why adoring God allows us to let go of lesser delights and the fears attached to them, I'm going to have to go back to southern New Mexico. Okay? On the border with Mexico... Um, on, a low, on a road lined with pecan tree orchards in a small town called La Mesa, there is a Mexican restaurant called Chopes. Okay? Chopes is this restaurant that literally expanded from an old woman's house. She was so good at cooking that she started cooking for her family and then her friends and the town and then the whole region. It turned into a restaurant. And it like piecemeal expanded as she just got more and well known. If you got lost on the way to the bathroom in Chopes, you might end up in a bedroom. True story. Or like a living room area. (laughs) Because it's like part house, part restaurant. It's like just that organically good in that sense of the word. Anyway, the chili reno there at Chopes is quite possibly the best Mexican food I've ever had in my life. Okay? It's spicy, it's tangy, it's gooey but firm, it's flavorful, it's fried, and it's just plain amazing. Okay? That's just good. Okay? Yeah, look at this. With places like Chopes just a few miles away, I was surprised to learn that many of my students at New Mexico State continued to eat at Taco Bell. <laughs> like, I was surprised they actually had Taco Bells in the state of New Mexico. It's like kind, of, <laughs> kind of unbelievable, if you think about it. <laughs> sure, like, I get it. Taco Bell's closer, faster, maybe cheaper. But the meat is cold, and it's mostly made of silicone. Okay? <laughs> 
It can't compare with Chope's Chile Reno. Smothered in green or red chilies, or both Christmas style. Look, meditating on Chope's, picturing it in my mind, yearning for its food, the ambiance of the converted house restaurant, the beauty of the flowering pecan orchards that line the road there, makes me never, ever want to eat a cold burrito at Taco Bell ever again. Makes me never want to visit the asphalt driveway or sit in the hard, molded plastic booths. In fact, I would say that meditating on Chopes would make anyone leave that drive through line and go to the restaurant that they wanted to go in the first place. That's a move that the Bible calls repentance. Do you see my point of this snobby Mexican story? Okay. I'm snobby about two things, coffee and Mexican. Okay. So maybe save yourself for a coffee story sometime. Okay, but David is treasuring the very best, right? What's unchangeable, what's secure, what's freely offered. The very presence of God. Yes, like Chopis, the Lord's beauty is sometimes not close at hand. And it could feel, or it feels that way, and sometimes it feels more expensive. But like Taco Bell, any other delights, school, friendship, job, romance, success, intramural athletic glory, <laughs> all these things, all these things, these good things, compel in comparison. They're just a cold, silicon-filled burrito. So with David, we too get to ask the question, we get to ask, we get to desire to desire to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. So if verses 4 through 6 are about why we attempt to adore God in our hearts and minds, verses 7 through 12 are calling out to God when he actually does feel distant and when he feels most costly. Look how honest verses 7 through 12 are. Okay, If you think that the Bible sugarcoating reality, it's not necessarily true here. So honest. Look how honest it is. What faith sometimes feels like. Sometimes we doubt whether God is with us. Sometimes we doubt whether he actually hears us or he cares to hear us, especially in our anxiety. In verse 7, the psalmist prays something that all of us should have the courage to pray. Hear, O Lord, when I cry out. Answer me. In verses 8 through 12, God, David holds God to his promises. You have said, seek your face. And my heart says to you, I have sought your face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. David, in his growing fears, is begging the Lord, don't hide your face from me. Don't turn away your face in anger. Don't forsake me. Don't give, up me. Don't give me up to my enemies. He realizes full well he is in too deep. He can't control the world out there, and he cannot control the world inside of his heart or mind. Worry is not getting anything under control. Self-effort cannot calm him remotely. Perhaps you felt this way even recently. Look, to quote the fish, who's like our living conscience in the cat in the hat, the children's classic, <laughs> this mess is so big and so deep and so tall we cannot pick it up. There's no way at all. <laughs> so the psalmist, David, prays and he even encourages us to pray because prayer is actually at its heart an acknowledgement that we, are, we too are in trouble. <laughs> we need outside help, a rescue outside of our self-effort. 
But in the midst of David's most despairing prayer, there's this glimmer of hope, and it happens in verse 10. For my father and mother have forsaken me. Not so much that part. But, <laughs> but the Lord, the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. And that, for David, was a long jump of faith. How in the world was he going to take him in? But for us, it's a baby step. Why? 2,000 years ago, false witnesses arose against a son of David, Jesus. And they breathed out violence against him. They sentenced him to death on a cross as a criminal. Worse, on the cross, Jesus' father, God, hid his face from his son. God turned away in anger. He cast Jesus off. God indeed gave Jesus up to the will of his adversaries. At that moment, forsaken, abandoned, given up, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the beautiful thing about what happened. This very act of exclusion ensures our inclusion. The cross's separation between Jesus and God ensures our eternal reconciliation to God. Because of Jesus, those who seek God's face will find his smile. Those who gaze upon Jesus' beauty or God's beauty will be made beautiful in return. Those who believe in Jesus shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. The cross simply stuns our worries into silence. Because it promises God's love is free and forever. Because the cross made a blood oath that God indeed controls the universe, and this very God is near to us. This very God listens to our prayers, and this very God does indeed protect us. Why? Because the master of the universe, God, is also our daddy. This trust that dad is at the controls of life's circumstances. There's dad doing his thing. Okay? That doesn't guarantee there's not going to be any more fears. Right? It doesn't guarantee that there's an end to an anxiety. At least in the land of the living. But it does help us more quickly listen to our inner fears. It does help us more often engage God in our fears, even by praying verses 4 through 12 to God. And our third and final point, God's fatherly control helps us to open ourselves up again to an unsafe world. Verse 14 ends the psalm on a note of self-exhortation. It's a pump-up speech. Classic locker room David. Okay, here he goes. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. In the original Hebrew, it's actually a much more positive ending than our translation implies. Okay? The word wait actually means something closer to the word hope. Okay? So verse 14 looks like doing many of the same things, but instead of fearing or trying not to care, it looks like hoping for the Lord, hoping for his alternative to this present moment, that this too shall pass. Look, for me at New Mexico State that last year, God's alternative actually looked like my large group growing after I announced that I was leaving. 
There goes my illusions of grandeur. I saw him leaving, and everyone started coming. God showed me the success that I craved and demanded had so little to do with my preaching, or even the assurance that I would still be there, my future presence as the campus minister. There was this greater delight worth treasuring. My students taught me it. It was gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. They wanted to look upon the goodness of the Lord, and that's why they came. Sure, the preaching of the word, my vocation, perhaps what, what you're thinking about with your vocation, these are important. They're a part of what it means to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and help others to do likewise. But I just want to contend it's just a small part. It's a stroke of color and a, master, a masterpiece swirling with colors and texture and lines. So as I started to take this truth in a few years ago and still to this day, I felt then more and more free to preach. In fact, I preached on the Minor Prophets, if you know anything about that. I called the series Postcards from the Edge. It was grim, but also beautiful. And not surprisingly, my single brushstroke became more bold and more beautiful. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the encouragement we have in Jesus that you are with us and that you're my daddy, and that our daddy actually has control of a lot of things, that our daddy doesn't have to sit in the front steps and, and weep with us because he can't do anything, but he, does, he weeps with us because he knows how much it hurts. I pray that you would help us to see that image, that you trust that image, that we would be able to pray your words back to you in the Psalms, that you'd enlarge our hearts, that you'd help us to examine our trusts, to look our fears in the face, and to see your goodness in the land of the living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.